Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society, or ECS. I'm Hamish Johnston, and in this podcast, we meet Maya Ghazal, who arrived in the UK as a Syrian refugee and is now pursuing a career in Britain's burgeoning aerospace industry. But first, a word from our sponsor. Join the leaders in energy, sensor, electrochemistry, and solid-state science research and technology by submitting an abstract for the 244th ECS meeting being held in Gothenburg, Sweden, October 8th through to the 12th. ECS meetings are catalysts for advancing research and offer individuals from all career stages an opportunity to present and get involved. The abstract submission deadline is April 7th, 2023. ECS encourages you to submit an abstract and join us in accelerating science. Visit electrochem.org forward slash 244 to learn more. Hello and welcome to the Physics World podcast. I'm Anna Deming, a freelance contributor to this week's show, and it's my great delight to introduce you to my guest, Maya Gazelle. Hi, Anna. Thank you. So, Maya, you first arrived in the UK in 2015 at the age of 16, having fled home in Damascus, Syria as a refugee. Unfortunately, your arrival in the UK was not quite the end of all the difficulties. We'll hear about that in due course, but you held fast, pursued your studies, completed your schooling and went on to graduate from university with a degree in aviation engineering and pilot studies. And now you work as a graduate research engineer at the Manufacturing and Technology Centre in the UK. Yes. Right. So your life so far reads as a glorious (laughs) triumph over obstacles. And I'm sure listeners will be really inspired to hear more about it. But let's start off with your departure from Damascus. We've heard a lot about the tragic earthquake that hit Syria and Turkey recently. But what was life like in Syria when you left in 2015? Thank you, Anna, first for this great introduction. And thank you for having me at Physics World. Um, It's a great great honour to be able to share my story with your listeners as a goodwill ambassador for UNHCR, as an engineer and as a former refugee myself. So my life back in Syria was pretty normal. It was not what we see in the media today. It was definitely was portrayed um, well that before the conflict happened. So I, ha- I had pretty normal childhood. I had a big extended family and a lot of friends. Um, I had big dreams. I wanted to travel and represent my country. My 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 hopes for university were to study political science. Um, when war happened and the situation started getting worse and worse and um it became way out of proportion. Um, I remember the first we heard about it, we were in school and my friend told me, she was just like, oh, did you hear like, there was this kind of trouble that were happening in this area outside of Damascus. And I was like, oh, I haven't like, cool, cool. Like that's, that's what it was. We, I mean, I was 12 and had no idea what it was going to happen. Um, fast forward, fast forward few years, 
the situation started to get worse. A basic life necessities such as water, electricity, heating, they were getting more and more difficult to get. Um, and um, it was when it was dangerous for us to get to school, whether because of the bombing, the fighting, schools would be surrounded um, by army troops and we would not be able to access them. There was all sorts of the reasons that our education got affected. And that's when my father made the decision to leave Syria because, you know, it was it was no place like he wanted a normal life for us. And we were not going to get it, get that being staying in Syria. Um, we as a family, we've we've all appreciated education. We've understood the importance of it is. And especially for me as a woman, it was, you know, kind of my 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 victory that I needed to succeed and make it like, you know, a name for myself. And, and my parents wanted to support that um, with with the conflict happening that that was not possible. And yeah, that's that's, I guess, when my life changed forever. So you came to the UK at that point. Um, you were a young girl of 16. Am I right that at that point you didn't speak English yet? Yes, yes, right. you're correct. So, I, yeah, I, I had like, you know, a few words, the hi and hellos, and I had Google Translate, but that's that's all it was. <laughs> so it all sounds quite daunting. Um, <laughs> I'm sure listeners would really like to hear that at that point, everything was done to help you and welcome you into your host country and its education system. But it wasn't quite plain sailing from that point mm-hmm. on either, was it? How did you find life in the UK and so on? Like you said... I could not speak English. All I knew was, you know, I was a small girl in a big world and I and I had a dream of proving myself and of getting education, which was a basic human right. Um, although that the language was not on my side, I still went and tried few schools to try and enroll, to try to prove myself. I told them to test me, to test my qualifications. Um, I had good grades um, and I showed them and told them that Although, you know, it was very dangerous, I, I still tried to go to school every day and I tried my best to not stop, you know, my education journey because it's very important to me. I got rejected from three schools and a college for no particular reason other than the fact that I was Syrian and that's that that's the fact that they could not move past it. They could not see past the stereotype of refugees and Syrians being uneducated, um, have like cross borders and they they could not see me for the potential and the person that I am and that is what like was a major difficulty and a turning point in my journey we were in the UK all by ourselves we did not have our family like we did not we did not know anyone I was lucky to have my family with me that they supported me later on in my journey but eventually I was rejected from school. I felt like I was rejected from my community and I felt like I'm starting my life from zero at, J- at the age of 16 with no one there to help me, um, not, nothing to support me, but rejection. Um, so it's it's definitely uh, was not the easy way to start a new life. I was excited for my new life in the UK. I was excited to lead a normal one and to fit in. Um, I later on discovered, you know, that I do stand out is is my way of living. Um, but it was it was definitely difficult teaching myself English, trying to prove myself um, all by myself as well. 
Um, I read books. I watched movies. I sang songs. I have bad singing voice, but I did it anyways. <laughs> Feels um, good, huh? <laughs> well, you know what? You've got to practice somehow. Yeah. <laughs> so if it was singing, then then that it was. Um, and then I started volunteering. Um, to to raise my confidence and and to learn English as well. Um, and yeah, my my journey started then. Right. It sounds like it must have. I can imagine it being very disappointing way to get started when you've left. You would have hoped so many things behind that you were trying to get away from, and then you just get faced with um, a different set of difficulties. But you persevered and. You got a, you got through your schooling and you got a place at university to study aviation engineering and pilot studies. You talked a little bit about um, some of the things you did that helped you to get um, a little bit more confident in English. I love that you were singing it. <laughs> um, and I also really enjoyed hearing your way of building your confidence was volunteering and giving, giving back when... Um, a lot of people might not have felt that way inclined. Were there other things that you, other coping mechanisms you had that helped you get through those difficult times? Um, so, yeah, like I said, my, my coping mechanism was volunteering. Though, like you said, my people would not want to do that. But for me, I felt that although I was forced with all this hardship, I still really appreciated the fact that we were given a chance of a safe environment here in the UK. We were given a chance and welcomed. And, you know, I, I understood that whatever misconceptions were about refugees or Syrians were just because of what the media was portrayed and not just because people were mean. <laughs> um, and and that's why I wanted to volunteer, because I wanted to prove myself as as who I am, as Maya, and I also wanted to prove myself as a Syrian refugee who wants to give a good image of, of her people. Um, so volunteering, um, I started with a charity called the Children's Society, and I was a uh, ambassador and a public speaker for them. Um, so I, I filled my time with going to Sunday church services, because that's where they do their work, and I'd speak, and um, it was it was a good opportunity for me because there was lots of um, what people consider old people there. Um, and so, like, I was able to make my mistakes and speak slowly and, you know, people would listen. And um, I was I was only faced with welcomes and smiles. And I, I never felt like there was a hostile environment towards me. And that's really what pushed me and motivated me more to to give back, to improve myself and to continue in my journey because it is it is needed it was at that time and it is still very important to portray this normal humane image of what a refugee can be um i i wanted i needed someone to stand with me and tell me that it's going to be okay to show me that it is possible to come out out of this hardship but there was no one there and I needed to be that person for myself. I needed to see myself in the future and to be like, you can do it, you can make this. And so I kind of took it on myself to be that person for other people. Um, and and yeah, that, that was another reason of why I was I was motivated to to give back, to volunteer and to persevere, you know, regardless of whatever hardships I, I kept getting um towards me or stereotypes. 
um, I knew that my story was not just going to end there, and I did not want to give up. Well, it's, uh, it sounds an inspired way of getting the the confidence and the encouragement that you needed at a time when it's so difficult and quite an, a sensitive age. And you seem to have handled it with the most extraordinary maturity. <laughs> and it's worked out marvellously for you because it, it seems to have bolstered you to, to keep pushing forward and reaching for the stars, as it were. You went on through school and went on to university to study aviation engineering. Yes. You, you said earlier that you were more politics inclined yeah. as a young un. So <laughs> what made you go for that? Um, so in Syria, back in Syria, you had to do good in all of the subjects to go to university. There was no such a thing as like choosing three subjects or four subjects like here in A-levels. Like you just had to do all 12 of them. It was it was not optional. Um, and um, I, you know, people get told, you know, children get told by their parents what, what they should be in the future. And so naturally I, I was told by my mom that because of my <laughs> skills of... Um, my, my passion for talking and um, my um, my love for traveling it does seem um, reasonable for me to to do politics and and become a Syrian ambassador in the future which is something that you know I I, I like I I adapted and I had passion for and I and I really wanted to continue with coming to the UK I kept getting told, that I was not good enough to study in a classroom with people my age by teachers whenever I'd go to a school. I was told that I'd never make it to university, that it was going to be too hard for me and it is not realistic. Um, now I think about it and I get angry at the way that I was like told these things and I and I get angry at myself for like changing what I wanted because someone else told me. Um, however, I, I, someone suggested that I do engineering instead, and it's something that has never occurred to me for some reason, though I was very good at physics and maths back in Syria, um, but I, I, it just never did. And I, I, and I applied to, to study engineering in college, and I got there, um, and, and that's where my passion, you know, I found my passion for engineering. I realized that I, I love to know more about things and how they're made and, you know, understand the whole cycle from, from start to end. Um, I, I loved being part of like of a sector that is so comprehensive. And, and also I then learned that engineering is not really like it's a male dominated sector industry in the UK or maybe in Europe. It was not in Syria, but it is here. And that was another push for me to be like, well, you know what, <laughs> I want to do this. Um, and I want to sh like, you know, I want to inspire people to do the same. Um, not necessarily engineering, but to stand up for themselves and, and to do whatever they want to do, whatever they're passionate about. I, I applied to study aviation engineering because I loved planes, because I was fascinated about the whole air traffic control, airport systems, those big machines, and I wanted to control them. Um, I, did, I did not want to be limited by who I am, by, my, by what society labels me, by my background. I just wanted to be in a place that I was passionate about 
And that was aviation engineering for me. That was being around planes and flying planes. Um, so, so it's funny how the world works. But I look back at my journey and I do think that there was, you know, some good bit. Like there, there was a lot of good, even in the bad that was happening to me, because it did make me realize my passion for aviation. It did, you know, make me give me the push to go and volunteer and then later on work with UNHCR and become a goodwill ambassador for them. Um, so so it was, you know, it, it was it was unfortunate situation that happened at the start. But I look back at it and I see that it is that's what made me uh, who I am today, and that's what what supported me in my journey. Really, the strengths that I got from from that difficult start. You seem to have done a remarkably good job at turning these difficult scenarios around and using them as a springboard and going further with them and and so on. And you don't seem to be too inclined to take the easy option either. <laughs> that being told well, that you weren't fun. good enough. A lot of people not think engineering is the easy option. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's no fun to take the easy option. I, I like true, a challenge. <laughs> I, I do like a challenge. I, and, and and I understand that, you know, when I when I do a challenge, yes, because because I love it. And yes, because it annoys me when people tell me that I can't and cannot like what I can and can't do. And and, you know, that's that's really the original thing that I feel the the push that it gave me is when someone looked at me and were like, right, you can't do that. Like, you know, you do not even bother to speak to me. And that is something that had really like motivated me for a long time because I feel like young people are not given the chance to dream and be who, who they want. Refugees are not given the chance, you know, to 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 be the person that they want. You know, all that people see sometimes is just the tragedy that happened to them and not the potential that they have. And I want to show with my story the potential that refugees have and um, and women have as well, especially, um, you know, like edu- education is important. And, you know, at some point that was taken away from me and it, it kind of did destroy me. I felt I felt so lost. Um, and so and so, you know, I, I speak and I talk because I love a challenge, but I also because. I love to show others what we are capable of. Yeah, and it's it's important, and you seem to be doing an excellent job of showing everybody has a right to an aspiration, and it's worth giving everybody a shot. And it's difficult not to feel angry along <laughs> with you at the reception you you had at during your school years, being told that you weren't good enough and not being given a chance. Were things different at university? How was life at uni? Um, <laughs> life is life at uni was was definitely more interesting. It was this huge change and shift from college to to university. Um, it was difficult for me to be honest to understand how exams work because though I was in college for two years prior to that, I still did not pick up how the system works because it was a college, so they had like their own way of teaching and examining things. So, so it was it was really difficult for me to acclimate into the whole educational system, how exams work, um, how to interact, you know, with teachers and stuff. Um, so that was the difficult part. But when I was in uni, I was I was not treated any different to any other student that was there, um, and 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 I used my time wisely in in uni, I'd say, anyways, um, to 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 focus on my uni work as well as my 
volunteering work because I, I had like lots of opportunity for flexibility. But, you know, I, I love my time at uni. I made great memories. I met wonderful people um, that, that, you know, I, I'd call like my friends like forever. Um, so, 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 yeah, it's great. That's great to hear. And you, it also sounds like you picked a course that was really close to your heart. You, you love planes. What was your favorite <laughs> part? What were your favorite bits of the course? What did you enjoy learning around the most and studying the most? So when, when I was in uni, my, my favorite subject was thermodynamics and aerodynamics. Oh, um, sister to my heart. <laughs> <laughs> I, I absolutely loved analyzing a plane's engine and understanding all the different temperature and pressures that are going through. And all like when we talk about V0 and V10 and all the different like processes that happens in the in the engine it was it was my favorite subject um solid body mechanics was something that i really loved drawing all these graphs and understanding what happens a beam and taking on the challenge of like a very complicated beam (laughs) which sounds which sounds kind of silly but but i absolutely loved it my my final year dissertation was on predicting wings deflection, torsion, and shear flow using um, a software on on PC, and I actually tried to do it simple in a way that I utilized Excel to do all the calculations, like for for like a wings characteristics, um, and it draws you like all the graphs and things that you need to know about, like you know where the points of weakness. Once you just like enter the aerofoil um, specifications, um, it was it was really fun. I enjoyed reading every single book that were like written all about plane designs, airport designs, all the different characteristics of wing, um, what it actually holds, and 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 yeah, and like you know, what? Why are wings important? Uh, which is like you know, say, silly to say out loud, but you know, it's something that I had to study so in depth. It was it was so much fun, that and of course learning how to fly planes, um, because <laughs> I'd say that is like the main focus passion of mine. You know, I, I love I love being an engineer, and I love the fact that you know I'm I'm a graduate research engineer now, but I also love flying planes. Um, which which I hope that I will like get to to continue with, with that passion um in the future and become a commercial pilot at some point. Um, so so yeah, physics is great. STEM is fun. <laughs> People should join. Yeah, the onwards and upwards, quite literally. Yeah, taking to the <laughs> skies. So you started a job as a graduate research engineer at the Manufacturing Technology Center in the UK. What's your day to day job like like there? What you get up to? So I started uh, my my current job about six months ago, and um, it's it's a graduate role. So I get to rotate between departments every six months for two years, which is great fun because it gets me to learn all about like the different sides of the business. Um, the Manufacturing Technology Center is a research and innovation institution, and uh, so we do. A lot of like behind the scenes work um so we don't actually manufacture things but we do a lot of the testing um and um a lot of like the innovation that happens behind the scenes the past six months i've been working within the industrial policy research center 
IPRC for easiness because it's a mouthful. And I have been writing a white paper on manufacturing for space. So I've been reading all about the current government policy between um, the national space strategy and uh, the leveling up agenda and understanding all about um, the current work that is happening and how is it that we can utilize the current expertise in the Midlands as a region to uplift the UK in the space race. Um, as I hope many of our listeners know, the UK is attempting to start launching small satellites from UK soil. Uh, we have done a first attempt back in January with the Virgin Orbit that went out from Cornwall. It was not successful, um, but we are happy that it was an attempt. Um, we appreciate we appreciate the attempt. Um, so, so yeah, so just understanding how we can make the UK, we can have the space sector as a sustainable cycle in the UK where we manufacture small satellites and launch them from UK soil um, because we do have the expertise currently in Scotland on manufacturing small satellites and CubeSats. Um, but then how do we bring these um, pivot on the current expertise that we have in the Midlands to join the space race and, you know, put our kind of fingerprint as, as a UK uh, small satellite manufacturer and launcher as well. Right. So watch this space. Uh, I guess you're working on this white paper. Have you got any spoilers for what we can look forward to in the future? I guess... Um, no spoilers, <laughs> no spoilers. But the aim is to get more satellite launches and have you know better space clusters around the UK. You know, and and you know we want to get SMEs to 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 more encouraged to be part of the space sector. We know SMEs are the backbone of the UK uh, manufacturing industry um, and space, especially in, in the UK. SMEs make like a large sum of space companies in the UK. So, um, yeah, just looking all about the different specifications, you know, space is hard and space is complicated. There are so many regulations that are happening around it. There are so many like safety things between like vacuum champers and thermal testing and it is difficult, but we want to get there. We, sure. we want to be part of the race. Yeah, it's difficult, but it's exciting, huh? It's it is very exciting, yeah. <laughs> I can imagine the regulations and all the paperwork possibly gets a little bit less exciting, but exciting yeah, times, hey? But, yeah, and I mean... bring the whole country into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I mean, like, the Civil Aviation Authority, they have... They were, like, one of the first countries, like, a few years in 2018 to launch, like, like those new space regulations that would make the UK, like, the first in Europe... Um, to, to have like regulations around launching small satellites. Um, so, so yeah, no, def definitely the government is, is doing its bit in, in encouraging. Um, and uh, we, we'd love to see it happen. We cannot wait to see it happen. Right. And you, you work, you mentioned it before, but you are, you're doing both your dreams. You're, you're living the dream of as an ambassador in a way with the UNHCR Um are you still in touch with your home country these days? See that. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so I'm. I'm very happy to be a goodwill ambassador for UNHCR, uh, the UN Refugee Agency. I was announced, I think, two years ago, around. Uh, I think it was two years ago on Women's International Day, um, and it's it's been a great journey. I've 
I've been uh, working with UNHCR for the past six years um, using uh, my my story and, you know, my my passion to change the image of refugees and, and speaking with them on, on different fronts and to donors, um, sharing my story and the story of refugees that um, I've met, which I went to Azraq refugee camp in Jordan excuse me for the pause, um, back in November and I met, um, like I met a few refugees families and I met those, um, two girls and one of them is going to go and be able to continue her, um, education in university, um, because of a DAFI scholarship. Um, and the other, unfortunately was, did not manage to get a scholarship just because they were very, very limited. And though she scored very high, um, scores in high school um, she did not manage to get it just because of the limited funding uh, which is quite unfortunate um, but yeah no in, in in terms of my work as a goodwill ambassador for UCR it's it's definitely a great privilege to be able to use their platform to share my story and also be able to to use um, the opportunity to to share the stories of those um, whose voices needs to be more heard. Um, in in terms of uh, being in touch with uh, my home country in Syria, um, I I am still in touch with with family. Um, of course, um, luckily I've got like big majority of family outside of Syria. However, there is still like a lot of them still in Syria, which is unfortunate uh, because the situation the situation is not getting any better. Um, and you know, of course, with the with the recent earthquake that hit Turkey and Syria, it's it's been really unfortunate, and and the country has been already like stretched, and conflict has been going on for what twelve years now. And those people who were affected in Syria were people who are already internally displaced. Um, so you know, tragedy on top of tragedy. Um, so yeah, I. I I do urge people to to visit UNHCR's website to learn more about what's happening and to try and help in however way they can, you know, sharing their stories or donating or fundraising. Um, it, it can be done in many different ways. Um, and yeah, it, it all makes a difference. It certainly does. We've had, I mean, in your case, we've had a wonderful story of triumph over adversity and and a story where I feel the best is yet to come as well. <laughs> so you're still quite young. So um, do you have any parting nuggets of wisdom, inspiration or encouragement for our listeners before we wrap up? Um, I've Maybe I've got a couple, but I, I have one that I've, I've heard recently and it really resonated with me. And it is, do not let your gift die inside of you. Um, we all have gifts inside of us. We all have something that we're great at. Um, share it with the world. The world wants to see it, you know. And and it's very it's very important that you do, you know. Find the right supporters around you that will push you to do that, um, and and go for it. And my second thing would be, um, refugees are humans too, and we. We deserve our human rights. We deserve to be looked upon as people rather than numbers and rather than burdens and um, just 
all the things that we get painted as. Um, we have dreams and hopes for the future. We, we've got families and we've lived a normal life up until we had to get displaced and start all again from zero. But that does not make us any less of a human than anyone else. Um, we are the same people. Look at the, um, the things that we have in common rather than the differences between us. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. It's been a real treat to talk to you. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think that's all we have time for. So from me and my gazelle and the rest of the physics world team, goodbye. Thanks, Maya and Anna. That was a fascinating discussion. Now it's time to look at what's new on the Physics World website. In an opinion piece called The Importance of Citing Black Women in Physics, contributing columnist Chanda Prescott-Weinstein writes about an online resource she's created. It's called Cite Black Women Plus in Physics Bibliography. It's a Zotero database with more than 4,000 entries of papers that are authored and co-authored by U.S.-based or rooted black women and gender-expansive people since 1972. The database uses information from African American Women in Physics, which is a nonprofit organization. Prescott Weinstein writes that the public resource is a first-of-its-kind bibliography of papers by a marginalized community of scientists, and she hopes it will not be the last. Also new this week is a profile of the British physicist Michael Robertson, who's a pioneer of optical communications. He has a career that spans more than 40 years. He began as a condensed matter physicist and flourished in the research and development of optoelectronic devices in industry labs. Robertson says he was never held back by working in industry, where he had access to more funding and better equipment than was available in academia. There was, he says, more of a focus on an outcome, whereas at universities you had more flexibility. You can read more about Robertson in a feature article on the Physics World website. It's by the science writer Anita Chandran. And just look for the headline, Michael Robertson, Pioneer of Optical Communications, Disconnects from the Network. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society, or ECS. Thanks to Maya Ghazal and Anna Deming for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, do listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester meets Charity Woodrum, an astrophysicist whose childhood dream of working for NASA was nearly derailed by a personal tragedy. Currently studying for a doctorate in galaxy quenching at the University of Arizona using data from the James Webb Space Telescope, her story is the subject of the film Space, Hope, and Charity. That's directed by Sandy Cummings, who also joins Glester in the podcast. Physics World.